Everybody. Welcome to the July 24th, 2015 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on outgoing Denver Auditor Dennis Gallagher using his final days in office to criticize a number of issues, including the Department of Human Services, for failing to cooperate with auditors and a potential I-70 project. Patty Cahoon from Westward, uh, we certainly didn't count on uh, Auditor Gallagher going quietly into that good night. He went out with the fire, uh, which is indicative of what his career has been like. What did you think of his parting shots? Well, they were vintage, and I loved it because they arrived exactly as the new people were being inaugurated. And I was also very grateful for them because I was one of the roasters of Gallagher on Tuesday night, and it gave me several laugh lines. So great public servant, 44 years in office. He, he'll be really missed around this city. Todd Shepard, editor of CompleteColorado.com. Thanks for joining us. You bet. Um, Gallagher has uh, really, I think, raised the profile of the auditor in Denver. We've had a lot of great auditors over the, the city's generations, but uh, uh, Auditor Gallagher really put a focus on some important issues. Uh, do you think the next auditor, Tim O'Brien, is up to the task, and do you think there will be some, still some things to clean up from what Gallagher has pointed out? Uh, things to clean up, certainly. Uh, can he live up to Gallagher's uh, big shoes? That's a really tall task for anyone. I would say that uh, just in terms of doing a quick take, 2015 now and, and this report by Gallagher becomes the capstone, but 2015 really now becomes a conservative watershed moment in Denver's history with the loss of Gallagher, the loss of Charlie Brown, and the loss of Jeannie Fox. Those three conservatives have really been a bulwark uh, against a lot of policies in Denver, um, and we're about five years now from Denver being completely like Boulder and endorsing kooky things like let's being Kyoto Protocol compliant by the year 2020. Sorry. <laughs> Eric Sondman, political analyst. Uh, Gallagher led us with something to talk about. His parting gift to Colorado Inside Out, probably to other people too. Um, what did you think? Well, first of all, I think uh, Todd Shepard can expect a libel action from Dennis Gallagher for calling him uh, conservative. I, 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 think I think he'll take offense to that. I'm going to have a slightly different take on this one than Patty. Yes, I think it was vintage Gallagher, how he exited office, but I also think it was a little bit bad form. I'm not suggesting the issues uh, didn't deserve to be highlighted, but you need to know when to say goodbye. This was not as bad as Bill Clinton leaving office with a whole bunch of questionable pardons, but um, I, I, I'll have a different take here. I don't think Dennis Gallagher in his final few weeks in office necessarily that those were the highlights of his career or that he covered himself in glory. The, the statement he put out the day after the election where even though he endorsed Chris Nevitt and then he just went went off on Chris Nevitt's campaign and what a lousy campaign it had been. Well, as best I could see, the centerpiece of the Nevitt campaign was the Gallagher endorsement of Nevitt. Um, and obviously what he was trying to do in that instance was protect some of his people to see if they could hold their jobs. I don't think this was the world's greatest form. 
Natasha Gardner, senior editor of 5280 Magazine, wrap it up for us. I think Dennis Gallagher did an interesting thing in making the city auditor position almost like a journalist where you have must-read people, that the bylines that you have to hear what they're saying. He became that with the auditor. What will be interesting is if Tim O'Brien can pick up that momentum. Now, Gallagher has kind of forced him into it, particularly by not signing the agreement related to the widening of I-70. He's forced Tim O'Brien to, you know, almost the first moment on the job weigh in on that that concept and it doesn't take too much scratching on the surface of that particular topic to start to find problems. This is not the last we'll hear of I-70 and Gallagher ensured that that's, that's going to be the case. Mayor Michael Hancock delivered his inauguration speech on Monday. Among the issues discussed were his plans to invest $15 million per year in affordable housing, job creation to help millennials to moving to the city, and expanding access to alternative transportation. Patty, as we all know, inauguration speeches are built for things like this, grand plans and millions of dollars. But in this one's a little bit different because as mayor, Mayor Hancock has a lot of power. I mean, not all of these can he can just do with a wave of uh, magic wand, but he can get a lot of things done. Do you think this really spells out what he wants to do or was just speech making? I think both. I mean, you... He wants to do it. Who can live in the city and not want to do something to get affordable housing in so you can at least have the lowest level have some access to housing? I'd like to see the middle class have some access to housing because that is disappearing too, and affordable housing is not going to help them. There are two different things that can put the brakes on some of these plans. One is voters, and come November, we're going to have votes on the DIA um, the development out by DIA plan and working with Adams County. We're going to have votes on the stock show. We may have votes on this college plan. And I don't know about you, but I feel an incredible discontent around town. People are mad that it's growing so fast without seeming to have any breaks or any oversight. If people, I was talking to someone last night who is one of those people who's grown a business from the ground up, is hiring all those millennials. And he said, I don't mind it taking three times as long to get where I'm going in Denver, but I mind that I'm going over potholes while I'm doing it. And we've got a lot of infrastructure and issues we have to have fixed. So I think people are going to be really paying a close eye on that. And they may be voting at the, they may be telling the mayor some things when they go vote on in November. That's a good point. Todd, do you think uh, Mayor Hancock has the political capital to get some of these things done? I mean, while as the structure of city government says he's, it's a strong mayor government, he you know, has the right to do things, but is the, does he have the political capital to get these things done? On some of the smaller items that were brought up in that speech, definitely, but when it comes to that centerpiece item of the affordable housing, um, that's where it, it'll really come down to the details. I think the Denver Post had a really even-handed approach to it in an editorial that they brought up where they said a lot of these little taxes are starting to add up now for residents. And you try to keep this balance. There are two kind of tax balances you try to keep. One is the balance between what the government's taking from the citizenry, but also then you look at the balance at the way government distributes the whole pie that they have, and you don't want that to get out of balance. Affordable housing can be very tricky. I think it was a, a state of the city address just in 2013 when the mayor declared the previous affordable housing initiative a total bust. Um, in, in Loveland, uh, you know, uh, it's been a, a struggle there as well. And the problem is a lot of times if the affordable housing is an actual purchase situation, those people then can't resell with any gained equity, so they don't really gain anything. If it's an apartment situation, uh, a lot of times you end up creating just sort of projects by some other name. So affordable housing is really tricky. I'd urge the city of Denver to go back to the legislature, keep working on a construction defects bill that maybe is just centered 
on Denver that's not a statewide fix that gives the city some flexibility to try some really creative things with the insurance industry. Eric, it's an interesting approach that Todd brings up. Uh, do you think Mayor Hancock's up for that uh, creativity, I guess, to approach this kind of problem? We'll see about that. I think Patty was dead on here. I mean, there's a long track record in Denver of tax increases passing. John Hickenlooper as mayor had, you know, had, had the golden touch with it. Um, I've commented around this table in years gone by that Denver is so liberal. I think there's an attitude that the more you tax yourself, the closer to God you are. Um, I think we're going to, I think we're going to test that theory here over the next couple of years, if not this November, then in some succeeding Novembers. The mayor has a very ambitious agenda, uh, starting with the stock show, which is not a small ticket item. There's the DIA issue on the ballot, which doesn't have a tax attached to it, but it's still a $10 million check that they're proposing uh, that the taxpayers of Denver write. And now this scholarship program, which has a lot of merits, but as uh, Todd pointed out, the Denver Post editorial, I thought that was right on the mark in terms of what is the cumulative impact here. Individually, a lot of these things make sense. What's the cumulative impact? And if you get by 2015, then in 2016, Denver Public Schools is probably teed up for a, a tax issue. The SCFD is going back to the voters. There is a long line, year after year, there's a long queue of these tax proposals. And voters strike me, as Patty articulated, in a cranky mood right now. We saw that in the municipal elections with uh, what happened in the auditor's race, with a number of city council races, and I think Michael Hancock was benefited by not having any, any opponent uh, in that race. Voters are in a cranky mood, and we'll see um, if their appetite for taxes is truly limitless. Natasha, do you think Mayor Hancock's going to have to pick um, some priorities? And there's some, there's, as Eric rattled them off, there's some pretty big ticket items. Any one of them, uh, a good heavy lift. If you have two or three more of those, at some point you have to kind of uh, uh, pick and choose. What do you think? Well, I think that's one thing that distinguished this speech from some of his previous state of the, of the city speeches because the grand plans weren't. Uh, weren't there as much as they have been in the past and that's because he has so many balls in the air right now and some of those are coming to fruition and you know we're seeing development we're seeing things change around the city but with so much up in the air I think people are still having that question of okay well what about my potholes what about things that are going around in my neighborhood and in fact one of the most poignant moments of his speech that got the most applause or some of the most applause was when he talked about fixing the the traffic light timing on Colorado which is such a simple thing and it was for me, just a moment of, well, that's your mood, Mr. Mayor. That's, that's what people in the city care about right now. So even as he's thinking about these big picture things, the type of things that might have a name on it, let's also focus on the small, small things that would really impact daily people's lives. I mean, the, the mayor careers are riddled with that. You have Mayor B. Nichols really losing his job from snowplows, nothing about a building. <laughs> and I still remember John Hickenlooper's most brilliant campaign at being at parking meters. People respond to what's going to impact their everyday life. That's a good point. Reporters from Newsweek were banned from covering the remainder of the Aurora Theater trial this week. Judge Carlos Samora said the publication should have known better after tweeting the name of one of the jurors online after the guilty verdict. Uh, Todd, you are an investigative journalist by trade. You know all these rules. Um, you're very good at it. But 
Um, this seemed like journalism 101. Just, are you amazed at this screw, the screw up? Yeah, when you when my Twitter feed was overloaded with it in in a short time, five minutes, it, it really was surprising. You expected it maybe from. Um, someone like a TMZ that maybe had descended into town hoping to scoop up something scandalous. Um, but I, I would say I think that this puts George Brockler's errant tweet into remarkable perspective. And now the Democrats are trying to get this, you know, they're trying to get traction by uh, making a, you know, taking that issue to the, is it the bar? that they're making the complaint to. So uh, that puts that tweet into perspective. Overall, though, I would say uh, Car Judge Carlos Samor is really to be praised for the overall trial, the remarkable efficiency he has shown, and allowing the single camera in, in the courtroom. I think he set up a model for these high-profile trials that will be followed by judges all across the country, quite frankly. Eric, I got to say, my first gut reaction was a: Hey, Newsweek still exists. But two, <laughs> what um, <laughs> did I steal your name? You stole my line. I, 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 I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. But the uh, but the error just seems um, uh, outrageous at this stage of the game. Any folks who aren't interested or knowledgeable about all the different intricacies of laws and uh, regarding the media, that that seems pretty darn basic. But uh, what was your reaction? I, I, I'm so sorry. You, you, still, you, you, still you took thunder. my line. I worked so hard on that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, but, but to your point, I agree. To Todd's point, yeah, this is journalism 101. I mean, there's, you know, occasionally there are gray lines, but sometimes the lines are just black and white, what you do and what you don't do. And this one was uh, com completely a non-starter. I agree with Todd. I think this judge, I haven't followed the, the, the trial day by day, but from a macro level, this judge is on top of it. Um, he's handling it. He runs the courtroom without coming across in a terribly autocratic way. Uh, I mean, uh, this is a judge that, uh, or a case, a very high-profile case that I think uh, you could study for courtroom management. And so kudos to him. The hard work is what just started this week, the sentencing phase, where it's going to get even much more emotional, I believe, uh, than the, um, than the, 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 the guilt phase that we, that we just finished. Um, so I think this next month we're in for a lot of uh, emotional heartbreak in that courtroom. I continue to ask the question of for what, but others have decided that and others will decide it. Eric, that's a great point. I mean, Natasha, you, you've covered issues like this um, very well uh, the last uh, many years, but I think when we looked at the guilty phase, you know, the, the, the verdict phase, the initial one, um, the community as a whole were, were pretty uh, generally agreed. Everyone said he's guilty. They can see these plans. If I was in the jury, I'd feel this way. You see a community really unified. Now we get into a phase where the community is not nearly as unified. Folks, you know, not want to deal with it. Folks that are against the death penalty. Folks that definitely want to see him uh, have a capital sentence. Folks that think, well, it's not going to happen for 30 years anyway, so who cares? Does that lack of community um, agreement, uh, do you think we're going to see some of the problems, not the really problems with that, but ramifications of that over the, this, this uh, penalty phase? Absolutely. Um, and especially with the case that's happening with Dexter Lewis in Denver as well, this conversation is not just about what happened to Aurora, but it's become as multifaceted as death penalty conversations can come or can be. I think what's interesting for me and something that I, I, I'm still waiting for is when, when Governor Hickenlooper made the decision to stall or delay Nathan Dunlap's execution, 
there was a call for some public discourse on the con on the concept of death penalty. That hasn't really happened, at least not in a governmental way or a really proactive, let's have community conversations. What's happened instead is now it's happening at our dining room tables. People are having to have this conversation in their homes and at their workplaces because of the Aurora case and because of the Denver case. And yes, it's, it's as complicated as it always is. Um, do the drugs work? Is our legal system efficient? Um, is this the appropriate response? What do we do with this type of person? That Those conversations, though, are happening in a very informal way, and I would really love the state of Colorado to have them in a more formal way because I do think the voters are going to have to deal with this issue sometime in the, in, in the near future. Pay of the Week really gave us the spectrum. You had a, a silly, uh, almost, uh, you wouldn't even expect this from a college newspaper kind of air from Newsweek. And then you have a really serious penalty phase starting. Take your pick. Well, I was amazed that if you've ever tweeted, you have to count so carefully. How do you not notice you've got that name in there? You know, you're counting, you're getting rid of the if you can. You're not going to put in a name that is forbidden. You don't even need to have taken a Journalism 101 class. The judge has basically been giving the rules and reminding you, you do not out the jurors in a case like this. So it was an inexcusable error, and there's just no way to excuse it. Um, Natasha's right. We, what we're going to soon have is a death penalty discussion, especially if they decide to put him to death, because what we're going to hear is endless fights, how much it's going to cost to fight it, what, what the flaws are in the death penalty, why didn't we just lock him up and avoid the whole trial, because we will essentially be going through the trial again for the next 20 years, if indeed that's what happens. That's why Nathan Dunlap still hasn't, you know, it's been 20 years for him, and he is still there. We're also going to begin to hear the effect of, did, did this coverage did have an effect on the recent theater shooting? So um, the topics keep going on, serious topics. Mm -hmm. Colorado's VA hospital is under fire this week as they continue to cancel non-emergency surgeries due to inability to properly sterilize equipment. I swear to you, this is not a story from the, the Civil War. Spokesman Dan Warvey stated the operating rooms are still functioning in a limited capacity while equipment is being sent to and from Cheyenne to be cleaned. I wish I was making this topic up. Uh, Eric, I read this and I, I first thought it was an onion joke. And then I re remembered that this isn't the one that's to be built. This isn't the VA hospital that we've been talking about for uh, months on this, on this show. Uh, that's the construction kerfuffle. This is the current hospital supposed to be helping that this community would consider the number one folks that should be helped, which are the heroes, the veterans of our country, and that we can't get materials for surgery cleaned. I, I, I'm sorry, I'm just beside myself. Your thoughts? Keep going, Dominic. You're saying, it, you're saying it well. I didn't realize we were already at disgrace of the week, but I, I mean, this could very well be it. It is, it is mind-boggling. It is truly mind-boggling. As someone who just saw the inside of an operating room a few weeks ago, I have a new knee uh, not that many weeks ago, you take some things for granted. And in 2015, you ought to be able to take a few things for granted when you go into the hospital, starting with the, the surgical equipment is sterilized. Uh, your Civil War uh, analogy is is right on the right on the mark. What do they have in Cheyenne that we don't have here? I mean, I I, I just don't get it. The, the real issue here, let me turn serious for a second, is there is no population who deserves first class, the highest standard of care, more than this population, and there is no population that is probably receiving less of it, or where it is more compromised. 
than what we're seeing here. I read at the same time this article was out, there's an article about the VA hospital in Detroit, which truly sounds like, you know, they don't have a Cheyenne to turn to. It sounds like you're, you're doing business or practicing medicine in some third world outpost. Um, I continue to ask the question, why is this a captive system? Why not let these people have the best operating rooms and the cleanest, most sterile operating rooms in any other hospital in Denver through some kind of voucher or whatever, whatever payment mechanism you want to come up with? I think the days of the VA being a captive system are winding down. Natasha, uh, Civil War jokes aside, uh, when you look at the VA hospital and the issues, besides the building, the building itself is an epic disaster. But you see stories like this. At one point, does somebody take this as some sort of populist um, uh, bat and say, we can make some difference with this politically? I mean, they really use this as an issue to beat the heck out of whoever's in charge with it right now. Well, absolutely. Someone should be doing that. But I'm, I, I will take up that bat, not in a political manner, but I will say, why don't the vets who are getting rescheduled right now come to the public in, in Colorado and say, you know, start a GoFundMe page and say, please don't make me go to the VA. Yeah. Like, so could we get public support to get these people the surgeries that they need? I mean, obviously the government's not, not stepping up. You know, I did look at something, the Center for Investi Investigative Reporting did a report that looked at the backlog for VA um, hospitals in the, in the last week it came out. But they said that we are now back down to approximately the level we were when Obama took office, which is great because we had a massive backlog that came up during that time. So we've made some progress, but that's not enough. We need them to do so much more. So if the government can't do it at this point, I think it's, it's public citizens that have to step forward and say, all right, what do you need for your surgery? We can make this happen. Patty, what do you think? A GoFundMe page for these folks? Because the helplessness can be coming from anywhere else. Or maybe just going to Donald Trump, who could spend a lot more time talking about how to really help the VA, the VA uh, veterans and the VA hospitals, how to get them organized. Why doesn't he just take this on instead of beating up John McCain? I would also like to say, if they are taking instruments to Cheyenne, I hope they are not trying to sterilize them in alcohol, because having just been to Cheyenne for two days, there is none left up there. <laughs> Todd, wrap it up for us. <laughs> uh, Harry S. Truman first gained a, a foothold on the national consciousness when he started his Truman Committee, where he drove coast to coast to uncover waste and fraud in the in the army system and and the you know the the places where bombs and airplanes were being manufactured. This country needs a Truman Committee for the VA. If you go all the way back to the 2007 Walter Reed scandal, basically we've had nothing but a, a decade of scandals that not only deal with the care issue, as Eric brought up, but that deal with the capital projects as we're seeing in Aurora. It's time for something serious to be formed to tackle all of the problems and make serious reforms. Well, it may look like we just we have already started it. It's now time to start a favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week, as always. Patty, start us off. Well, it was ironic on Monday morning when you have the, all the stories about the inauguration, a big time in Denver, no matter how you feel about the direction Denver's going in, and you suddenly wake up with a very diminished Denver Post. Monday was the deadline for people to say whether or not they were going to take the latest buyout. And we are losing some of the best bylines in this city, not just Lynn Bartles, but Joanne Davidson, one of the hardest working pe uh, people in town. Mark Jaffe, really good. Steve Robbie, really good reporters. A lot of the institutional memory, not just for the Denver Post, but for this city. And it is definitely a lesser city without them.
Todd. For a city that's so obviously uh, involved in our physical life and our outdoor life, uh, the disgrace goes to this shuttle company that overslept their alarm and couldn't get their shuttle buses out to save those 700 half marathoners and just left them abandoned. <laughs> uh, was it at the finish line? Anyways, uh, a, a disgrace and a really a black eye when uh, our outdoor life is, is part of what brings in the tourism to this state. Eric. I was going to go with Donald Trump, but that is so obvious, and Patty already covered it. Since we're, we went after Newsweek, the institution that apparently is still around, <laughs> let me also talk about Gawker. Uh, I think Gawker set a new low this week in, in, in trying to out a private citizen. There was no issue there of hypocrisy in terms of his public life versus perhaps his private life. There was no reason to try to out this person. Gawker is sort of the low level of journalism these days, and um, shame on them. Natasha. So I'll go back to the theater shooting in Louisiana. There's a website that's tracking this. It says, well, yesterday was 204 days into the year, and there's been 204 mass shootings this year as well. There is, we're, we've gone way beyond the point where we can say that, that guns aren't something that need to be really thoughtfully approached in this country. It needs to happen. Tennessee, something nice about somebody? Patty? Well, Dennis Gallagher and the seven council members who are all who all left this week, whether you agreed with everything they did or not, they certainly worked hard for Denver. We're going to miss them. We'll miss their institutional memory, too. So losing those post reporters, losing some of those council members, it's a different town we're waking up in right now. You're here. And I'll take Patty's disgrace and just sort of turn it on its head in that uh, you just have to wish the best of luck and say a small prayer to those 22 journalists. I think it's 22 is the last number I heard that are taking the buyout. Change is always difficult. Now that Lynn has snapped up the SOS job and a, an old colleague of mine, Roger Hudson, just took the AG's job, it's not as though there's just a ton of spokesperson jobs out there in the market. It's going to be a rough transition for these people, and we wish them the best. Eric. I'm not going to be original here. I'm going to go ditto on Patty's disgrace, on, on, on Todd's comments here. To all of those journalists, we wish them well. They have uh, done very well uh, by the journalistic profession in this city. In particular, kudos. I wasn't here last week, but particular kudos to Lynn Bartles, who is a, a truly an original. Somebody, there are not that many people that you say we won't see their likes again, but we won't mm -hmm. see a political reporter mm -hmm. like Lynn again, and we'll miss her at this table as well. You're here. Natasha. At the inauguration, there was a young woman who sang the national anthem and was amazing. And the Denver Youth um, Poet Laureate was amazing as well. If those two women are, are a sense of, of where this city is going, it's a good start. And I will add to the Seats of the Nights with somebody to echo that, uh, what we said here about Lynn Bartles and all the, the great journalists were losing the post, but uh, especially Lynn, she's been a friend of the station, uh, a friend of mine, a friend of this table. Uh, I don't think Colorado politics will ever be, be the same uh, without her uh, institutional knowledge and her coverage of it. So we wish her the absolute best, and I'm looking very forward to that first Secretary of State's office. Even if they even have press conferences, that's, that, that's really going to be something to watch. That is all the time we had tonight, so thanks for tuning in. Before we go, we want to clarify an error we made a couple of weeks ago. We, when we talked about the potential recall election in Jeffco, we discussed the cost of taxpayers, but a viewer kindly informed us that an unrelated vote is already scheduled to be held, so a recall election, if it were to happen, would not be a special cost to taxpayers. So we always enjoy hearing from our viewers, and we appreciate the clarification. Remember that you can catch any part of the show or uh, CIO Postgame, our special web exclusive uh, uh, segment, online, and be sure to check out the CIO podcast on iTunes. For everyone here at Channel 12, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for watching. Good night.